when in stress or resistant. People can't learn anything when they're in that yeah. space or yeah. embrace anything positive about what the change might bring because they are thinking of mortgages, they're thinking of raising children, they're thinking of cost of living. That's what the pandemic has done. We just need to look at all the change that's happened for people. There is a lot of poverty out there and a lot of people who are suffering. So when I say planning for disruption, I just think it's complex. I think it's about thinking of how to put in a whole bunch of supports for the people that are leading the changes, about how to have better understanding of what people are experiencing. This is Three People in Your Head, a podcast about getting the best out of yourself and others. Co-hosted by Matt Taylor and myself, John Fleming. In this episode, we speak to Mandy Lacey, who is a teaching and supervising transactional analyst in the organizational field. We discuss disruption preparedness, group memory, and meeting intelligence, plus the many ways Mandy applies TA concepts and approaches to assist her clients in their processes and understandings of change on the organization, their teams, and themselves. Mandy, thanks so much for joining us on Three People in Your Head. Why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself, your roles and responsibilities, professional identity, that kind of thing. Mm, great. Well, firstly, thank you for inviting me to be part of the series. Exciting. I'm thrilled. Pleasure. Yeah. So I'll start in the now and perhaps go backwards and then maybe talk a bit about the future. But I do a lot of consultancy work in organizations and my focus at the moment is what's called benefits realization management. So it's working with predominantly major digital health initiatives here in New Zealand and it's how we look at measuring tangible and intangible benefits. So the soft and the hard, the technical. In terms of my contract work, I do that. Yeah. And I do evaluations of programs and I've worked in the transformation space for a long time. So, yeah, and I kind of stay on the side because I've never had a full-time trainer TA role. I've had training groups and I have a small supervision group at the moment. Right. And for many years, until about the last five, I was heavily involved in the TA world nationally. I've lived in New Zealand and Australia, involved in both those organizations. And internationally, I was a big part of ITA for a long time. Yeah. So, and amongst all of that, I did my TSTA in the organizational field in 2013 in Japan and Osaka. Nice. Yeah. And then, and alongside that, I became really interested in learning in the workplace. And so I did a master's at Sydney Uni in learning science and technology. Yeah. And it ended up being in the health space actually around patient efficacy. Um, through patient education technology, which was fascinating. Yeah. And then got invited to think about doing a PhD, which was something that I'd never, ever, ever dreamed of. <laughs> <laughs> and how is and, that? A lot of yeah, work. Well, it is a marathon and it has to be something you're interested in. And often when you start, you're not quite sure. And I became exceptionally interested in group memory and workplace settings. And I cast it in sort of team meetings and a workplace activity to examine. And it's interesting around how that also became about TA2 because one of the phenomena that arose was around structure and around how much people wanted structure. So I'm sort of in the midst of putting together a workshop for, oh, it's an up-and-coming IATA, I think, a TA research conference coming up this year, and I hope to get a paper written alongside that, sort of speaks more into that. Yeah, 
and I often used to hear myself tell this story, my fascination of groups and how people fitted together started at a very, very early age and growing up in a large family, rural family and a farm here in New Zealand. And I was always interested in the shearing, actually, um, because there'd always be, you know, shearers bought in. Yeah, sheep farm, sheep and cattle farm. Yeah. And I was always interested in how that happened. And then I was a holiday job. You know, all of us kids used to do that. We did it farther. But then we went and worked in other sharing gangs as holiday to pay for going to tech and public uni and things like that. And I was always fascinated in the leadership and how that set the tone and what the farmer was like and how that set the tone. And so... And that's how you got into yeah. kind of organisational leadership. Yeah, it is actually. You know, I've been fascinated. As a kid, I was fascinated in the family tree. It came from both my family of strong roots in Ireland, from Ireland. And I was fascinated in the stories about why they came here from all of those early yeah. settler things that happened in New Zealand. So, you know, I've been fascinated in that. And when I work in organisations, I'm always interested in the leadership styles. When you go in as a contractor, I guess you have a third eye, if you like, or a yeah. a different lens that you can look through when you think of the contract. It's different. You're not in amongst it. You're kind of observing in lots of ways, as well as completing pieces of work for them. Yeah. So I, fi- I find that TA being part of my life for so long, I naturally use it as a way of there's a bit of tension or you feel something with somebody or there's something going on that you get the TA will one. There's a language yeah. that can go and unpack or with a TA colleague, you can go, oh, this is interesting around, this is my fantasy or my thinking about what might be going on. Yeah. And you can observe stroking patterns. I find digital teams quite low in the whole positive stroking. So you're talking about programmers and people who are yeah. uh, experts in the field of digital tech. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's over time, It's that's been an observation and it's even currently in a big piece of work I'm doing. I'm interested in how much I miss that. I miss not getting feedback from an email, say. Right. <laughs> uh, okay. You know, so those things. And then I find myself, I feel myself going, oh, I wonder what's going on. You know, like all this chatter in my own head. That's how some people operate. Not a reflection of yourself. It's just them. Yeah. Yeah. So when you got into TA personally, how did that happen? So what was your introduction to it? Yeah. I was living in Australia in Western Australia, actually. My mother's from New South Wales, so I'd spent quite a bit of time there as a kid and then went over to Western Australia and lived there for over 11 years. And whilst I was there, my children had just, both of them were at school and I got offered this role in general practice, actually, to help the hospital put a a birthing suite in a public hospital as well as help them with their accreditation. And what an experience it was. Just around the whole tension between workforce groups, between obstetricians and nurses, management, right. yeah, and also tension between highly interventive births and non, which are putting in a birthing pool and all that is looking at more ways of natural birthing and yeah. um, creating an environment where there'd be less intervention for women that aren't of high risk, et cetera. Yeah. And at the same time, uh, Linda Gregory, who teaches TA in Perth, yeah. just through a series of events, was coming down to where I was, which was south of Perth. And myself and some of the colleagues from this hospital, we ended up, or the, the director of nursing did it, and a couple of others. It was a TA101 as well as like an introduction to counselling. Like it went for 
Right. Two semesters, I think. Yeah. And yeah, and that was just a real eye opener for me around, I could just see things. When you do TA 101 yourself and you see people go, oh my goodness, that's why I do <laughs> that. That's why I do that. And, yeah. and one of the biggest takeouts was do TA to yourself before you do it to others <laughs> because it's so easy, isn't it? Too. Yeah. Oh, like that. Oh. And then through another series of events, I ended up back in New Zealand. And I was in a management role in a service that provided services for people who had experienced sexual abuse who were recovering. And one of the staff there said to me quite early, I don't think I'm actually going to handle the way they had a leader there for 10 years or so. And she said, to me, I don't think I'm going to be able to handle your leadership style. I'm going to, here's my resignation. Wow. And yeah, that was quite confronting. Yeah. And instead of saying, well, it's been a big decision and chatting about it. I said, well, why don't you, how much leave have you got? Anyway, long story short, it became a very difficult situation mm. uh, with a lot of conflict and was really, really challenging. And I thought, wow, I need, I need way more skills, more help, more supervision, more everything. So I was feeling really personally affected, mm. professionally affected. Yeah. And then through another series of events, this is prior to email, this New Zealand and Australia used to do seven-day TA residentials ah. um, every other year, and typically was in New Zealand. Yeah. And weirdly, something like this came in the mail, and before I knew it, I was down at a seven-day residential <laughs> in the South Island. And honestly, I'd never felt so seen and heard by myself and others in my adult life, really. And then I discovered that there were four fields but also that Evan Sherrard, who was one of our founding forefathers, if you like, of TA New Zealand, yeah. um, was running like what we termed at the time, like a TA 202 at Auckland University of Technology. So oh, That's interesting. So is it a college education a establishment? Yes. Yeah. Like it was a university and it had within their psychodynamic field or their whichever stream, there was a TA stream. And by this time, I was now general manager of another organization who really supported me being able to do this because it was once a week at uni. Yeah. And then I knew that I wanted to continue in leadership roles or working with groups and organizations that felt a lot more at home to me than psychotherapies. And so yeah. that was what you kind of originally trained in in the TA roles yeah. or TA courses yeah. that you were doing, right? Yeah, and so the organizational was a better fit. Yeah, that's right. And so. There wasn't anyone teaching that here in New Zealand. So it was a lot of translation. Yeah. There was one person who was on her way, had her CTA, worked with her for a while. And then mm. there was someone in Australia and then came to international conferences. And yeah, so it was quite a... It sounds like a lot of effort for you to was, train in organizational. It was a lot of effort. And it's interesting when I look back around that. I mean, one of the attractions... A, the theory was attraction and the practice and understanding the concepts. Like They made sense to me and I could easily translate the professional development. And, but I yeah. found them easy concepts to be able to, at the time, do some of the talking to the senior executive team about them as well. Yeah. But yeah, it was a lot of effort. Yeah, yeah. I wonder. Sounds um, like it really piqued your interest. It did. It piqued my interest. And the other thing that piqued my interest was the community. I really respected the elders. I think, well, I want to be like them when I grow up. (laughs) (laughs) And in fact, at one conference in India, I did a TAJ article published now in Sydney and 
learning a lot about learning sciences and I love the concept of cognitive apprenticeship and so I kind of intertwined that into an article that was published in the TAJ. And Can you just say a little bit about what that means, cognitive apprenticeship, just for my interest more than anything yeah. else, not that it's yeah. TA. Yeah, it's, like, yeah. it's a pedagogy in terms of how people learn and yeah. it's particularly around people learning by watching, practicing, doing, critiquing. Yeah getting better at yeah great so an example for that in TA where I kind of the synergies for me were a lot of training that I was involved in had a lot of fishbowl exercise where you either had the turn as a consultant or person being the counsel therapist yeah and you had your peers watching and your supervisor or supervisors and the biggest learning ever you're really vulnerable you need to feel really trusting I mean you both would know what it's like to me, that was a way of, like when I was first involved in that, you'd watch your supervisor do a piece of work and then they'd ask you, what did you notice? Or yeah. you'd ask questions, not about the content, but about the process. And I think that's a very rich way of, it's kind of got a dual, if not treble, yeah. learning component for yourself. You're getting feedback, you're being brave enough, if you like, to yeah. be vulnerable in front of your colleagues, in front of you. So to me, so cognitive apprenticeship, and its theoretical term is, if you think of an ordinary apprenticeship, say doing being a plumber or builder, yeah, you have to be in a plumbing context or a building context, Yeah, those apprenticeships. But cognitive apprenticeship is more around how you can pick up a bunch of skills or things that you've learned and apply them anywhere. Right. Love that term. Do you think yeah. we've moved away from that, Mandy? Because it seems to me, from my experience, that TA training these days is a lot more academic than necessarily a cognitive yeah. apprenticeship. Yeah, there's a tension, isn't there, with TA around how it's not recognised in the academic world. Mm. Um, and it is in some instances, but it's not. Unless you have come across it, you're not going to hear about it in a university typically, are yeah. you? you know, unless you go to Metanoia or... Yeah. And I think there's something, I think, around the script of TA about that. And I think that's part of, for me, which I noticed in terms of my own I like to say the word try hard, but my own thing of putting a lot of effort in to do something. I think yeah. a lot of effort goes in subtly in our TA world and our global, I call it the global qualification framework of wanting to be recognized. Yeah. And I wonder within well, that is that tension or that desire to be recognized academically. And yeah, so I think that's a good question. I mean, I did a piece of Mark Widow, Sin and I ran a conference, I uh, ran a workshop at a uh, Rome conference, 2000. Yeah maybe 16, I think, was around how we could make the case studies, pieces of research. Actually, that must have been 2014 because in 2015 when we talked about it, there was a lot of pushback about it. With both of us having, because I came to academia late, we thought there would only be a few tweaks that you could need to do in a case study to actually make it, recognize people, pieces of research. That would be a groundswell of evidence. Yeah. So, but that's not answering your question. Um, <laughs> that's interesting, though. Because we're getting into the area which John and I are really interested in is why is TA not better known? And we always end up asking that question often a little bit later in the podcast, but it's emerged now. So you're already getting into that TA's relationship with the academic world and why TA isn't better known. So yeah, yeah I think it's fascinating. I know. I mean, when I wanted to get into Sydney to do a master's, I pushed and pushed and pushed around having a CTA and almost completed a TSTA and around 
the validity and the rigor yeah. and the robustness of the training and the writing and the things like that. And in the end, they let me in. Wow. They said if I didn't prove myself in 12 months, well, you'd be end up with a certificate or something. Really? Um, yeah. Wow. And then I wonder in terms of the whole Eric Byrne story and experience of not being accepted in the psychodynamic world and then mm. creating, going about and then starting off transactional analysis arm, if yeah. you like, because, you know, the, or not arm, but a field. Yeah, it's interesting because when I started research at Sydney University, my supervisor, and we were in a group, so all of the people that were doing PhDs with him, it wasn't a big group, there was about six of us, but he wanted us to do conversational analysis. <laughs> and I thought, I'm not learning anything else like that. I'm just not. <laughs> <laughs> of course I did. And the, while I'm talking to you, it may come back to me, but the person who designed this way of analysing conversations, which is minutiae, yeah. down to pauses, it's really, really detailed, yeah. was in San Francisco, was the same age as Eric Byrne was. It's interesting, I think, around that time of what was emerging around yeah. new fields and new thinking. Because conversation analysis, it's not something that I'd want to keep continuing on with. But in terms of analyzing my own research, using that tool was exceptionally helpful. <laughs> so, yes, I think there's something that's happened. Whether we can change the story around rather than burn being rejected from or not accepted is that actually he then had the opportunity to be innovative and create something new. And whether we turn the story around to yeah. being like that. Yeah. And because I know when I was at Sydney, I got asked to write courses on TA for diplomas and things like that. Really? And yet my loyalty to this international qualification framework of, well, if I'm not there, who'd be teaching? And they said, oh, somebody else. <laughs> and then, of course, you go, well. But there was also, they wanted me to do it voluntarily. Well, I was kind of a bit over volunteerism by then. <laughs> but also, that time it was the thinking of if people wanted to be qualified in TA, they need to be taught by people that go through that. Yeah. And there's people using TA all over the world in all sorts of ways that aren't part of what, you know, yeah. our our qualification framework. And I think yeah. that's okay. You can't wall it off, can you, Mandy? I know there's been an attempt to do that in terms of to become a certified transactional analyst and you need to follow this pathway and you can only do it within the closed loop of the TA world. But it, you can't police it in that way. From my perspective, people are going to learn TA whether they buy a book or they know somebody else who knows a little bit about TA, it's very hard to close it off. And Matt and I are really interested in that because we like what you've said about Eric Byrne's story and maybe some of the scripts that runs alongside that. Because yeah. my perspective on the TA community has been that we are very turned in on ourselves. Mm -hmm. So we all know each other and network with each other very well, but we don't often reach out yeah. into the world. Do you share oh. that perspective? Yeah, I do. I do. And I think perhaps the becoming more academic is an attempt to fit in because we know when we're in that academic paradigm that whether we like it or not, that's how it operates. It's by yeah. publications, it's by research. And that's was Mark and I's thinking, which actually we've never talked, we've never connected about it ever since, was it wouldn't take much to make a case study a yeah. piece of research. Mm. In fact, most, and actually would just be helping people, we think, to set it up and how you would go about doing a master's or a diploma piece of research. Yeah. And yeah, so I was interested in the pushback about it 
because there's so many CTA exams being written. Yeah. And to be able to publish that or have that, yeah. I mean, I know it's not that as easy as it sounds because it's complex and it's about that whole doing the ethics side of things and mm. anonymizing situations and people, et cetera. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Fascinating. I'm not sure what the future is. Yeah, it is fascinating, and I think it's good that the conversation and the, you're asking the questions. Yeah, we've had all kinds of conversations around the reason, the way they did early days in TA, and then we've also had lots of questions and discussions about how we can bring TA to a wider audience for the benefit of the wider audience. Personally, one of the reasons why we set the podcast up is just after a short period of being trained in TA, you recognize very quickly, I think as you were saying, that I've got all these maps and models now in which I can navigate the world in a better way. And yeah, it seems such a shame that it is restricted by the current scenario when so many mm. would benefit. But mm. yeah, yeah. And I'm not sure what the solution is, whether there'd be a university in the world that would embrace it mm. and embrace the thinking of having people that have gone through the qualification process themselves. Mm. Because as you know in universities, I mean, I've taught at business schools and things like that. I mean, you can just get thrown a unit to teach. <laughs> really know much about it. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> and I guess the thing, though, is I don't know whether there are that many. The whole personal journey and learning and work you need to do, you know, does make it stand outside, if you like, all that the rigor of the people that you're working with. You want them to be yeah. well professionals, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. Like you were saying, when you first trained, the first part of it was about your personal experience mm. of life. And that, I guess, when you train in TA, it is about personal change and personal development. And so I guess mm. if someone is delivering a training course, if they're going to do that effectively, they've got to have been through that themselves. It's not just an academic exercise, is it? Yeah, well, I think there's especially in the psychodynamic, you know, psychotherapy and counselling. However, having said that, I think doing the organisation, but you've still got to do that work. Yeah. <laughs> it's really important because it's, in lots of ways, it's very multi-dimensional. Yeah. I think that's, you know, where the contracting of three-cornered contracts and multi-cornered contracts, exceptionally important to do at the onset yeah. um, when you're working in organisations because it's, I know at the beginning for me, I had such a tendency to do more and I get myself in a bit of strife because you think you were doing them a favour, but actually the scope, you know, you know what it's like doing digital programs, you know, you've got to really hone in the scope because yeah. it's, it's such a good process is what's in scope and what's not. Yeah. 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 And in the questionnaire that we asked you before the podcast, you said that some of your favorite theory was the contracting. Mm. And yeah, such a brilliant tool. Maybe you could say a bit more about that and how relevant and important that is. Yeah, that's interesting. And in terms of the recent, for the end of last year, I ran another TA101. And that's another challenge I think TA has is the language, which I loved that Eric Byrne wanted the language to be something that pretty well everyone could agree. You know, the other side of that is it can sound really simplistic. Yeah. So ran a TA101, then went and on and did some work with a senior leadership team from there and about uh, contracting and how profound I think it is yeah. on a day-to-day -day basis. Of yeah. If you just start checking out your assumptions for a start, they can be quite illuminating. Mm. And the you know how you might do that around, oh, my thinking is we're doing this for 45 minutes. 
you guys and hello, we're here an hour and a half later, which is okay by me, but is it okay with you? You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. So you're kind of checking it out or I often use an analogy of a little old lady who's got heaps of bags and you go to help her and she tells you where to get off. But if you'd said, she thinks she's trying to steal things, but if you'd said, it looks like you've got a heavy load there, would you like a hand? Yeah. Can I help you? just turns everything around to being a permissive, a yeah. way of getting permission to do things. Yeah. So I think that's why I like doing the work with people where you either work a week apart because running a TA 101 over a weekend is people probably go away with one or two things, yeah. I think. Yeah. Whereas if you can look at it, they say, come back and say, what did you notice about having a go at contracting this week? And I know when I had a training group, that was really you know, you'd spend half your time listening to people's increased awareness around the theory, the practice, their own understanding or experience from that. And I think, so again, it's that, but I agree with Byrne, like until you can teach it or diagram it, you don't understand it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, or, the, or not so much don't understand it, but I think the depth of what it means is greater when you're diagramming it. So when you're going through your training or getting ready to do your CTA exam and what actually doesn't happen in your CTA, you tear down, you've got a diagram or you certainly, it goes to a deeper level of learning and understanding, doesn't it? It does. Or having to have good examples around what you mean. Yeah. Well, I've been training in psychotherapy for three, four years now and I've just started training in organizational and I love how the same principle of diagramming complex systems and creating understanding through these simple models, you know, models a definition that they are oversimplifications, but very useful. Again, it's a brilliant thing that TA has to help understanding and awareness. Absolutely mm -hmm. fantastic. Yeah. yeah. And it's not only until the leaders want to lead change and also think that they might have something that they could improve that change happens, mm. I think. Yeah, um, in true. my experience, in early days you can get bored in as the chain. You, you know, they are the problem. Fix them up. Yeah, <laughs> and they yeah. were involved. It's, yeah, the scapegoat. Yeah, I was a bit naive. I think in the beginning around all of that. Yeah. Um, now it would be either it needs to be good sponsorship or part of it, or there needs to be some way of integrating. You're yeah, not being a separate. Not having separateness, I think. Yeah. Something that I know you're interested in that we'd really love to talk to you about is your work on disruption and disruption management, because obviously that is, or managing disruption in companies, because that's obviously been a huge thing as we've been in the lockdown with COVID for over a year now. And disruption preparedness, I think, is how you described it. Yeah. So could you tell us a bit more about that and how that fits in with TA and your understanding of that? Actually, in thinking about our time together today, I went back in a chapter coming out in the in a new organisational TA book later this year, I think. That you've written? Yes. Fantastic. Yeah. What's um, the name of the book? Oh, the name of the book is On the Edge, it's called. I'll send you a link, actually. I've stuck it up on my LinkedIn. Great. I'll send you a link to it. Yeah. And my particular chapter is around learning practice at work, learning practices at work, a case for cognitive apprenticeship. Great. <laughs> So I talk a bit more about that, and so it's a lot about learning. But why I'm bringing it up in terms of disruption is I pick up Julie Hay's model, or Julie Hay and others that have done the whole change cycle of the change, started with Pamela Vin, and I've put in an extra column around so what I think gets underestimated and what I think happens around disruption is inviting people to draw on their knowing and learning 
none of us would have had that about the pandemic. Yeah. However, we've all had change that's happened to us unexpectedly Mm. in some form or another. And all the change models actually are the same. They look the same in how they're drawn. And so I put in a column in there about really getting, inviting people to think about their knowing and their learning around previous experience, how they could apply it to this experience. So that's one aspect. If I think of the piece of work I'm involved with the Ministry of Health at the moment in New Zealand, there'll be, oh, and actually other ones around the disruption of technology. So to start with, often a new technology can create a wee bit more work while people are learning it. Right, yeah. People are getting used to it. It's understanding the cycles of development around resistance as well. Yeah. Thank you. So in terms of preparedness, that's what I mean is about knowing that there'll be levels of resistance and what yeah. do people need so that, you know, we've got some good TA models about that of yeah. going through that change process and what as a manager you can do and what as an individual as a staff person you can do. So I think that's an excellent model for being prepared for the level of disruption yeah. that's going to happen. And of course, we don't know what it's going to trigger. I mean, it's just been huge, major health reform yeah. announced here in New Zealand in the last week. The levels of anxiety and stress will increase because it's moved very much to an NHS national model right? from what was 20 district health boards. I mean, it'll take some years for it to all happen. But, right. You know, the level of anxiety and stress out there. So that preparedness of disruption, I'm thinking more from a practice. If you were the person leading the transformation is A and your team, what do we need to be thinking about? So often I would say in that cycles of development model where we're up here in the recycling yeah. as the leaders and the knowing, well, thinking about, well, what was it like for us when we first heard about this thing? Right. Yeah, so it's about thinking of the emotional side as yeah. well as the technical side, the practical side, the how to do the things of growing your champions within the organization and all those good things. Yeah. And it is about the emotional factor as well. If you just take the example of the health system reform in New Zealand, because I heard you mention the cycles of development, do you think that you immediately enter the becoming stage of that model once it's announced? Do you immediately enter a liminal space where you know you're now going somewhere else, but it hasn't yet happened? Because I know that liminality can bring up all sorts of of stuff for people about lack of safety, lack of structure, lack of certainty. Just be interested to hear your thinking about that. Yeah, and I think as well as Jacinda Ardern's got a a glowing international reputation, nationally there's questions, which of course is going to happen. And after that, it was like, it's about time we needed this reform. The bureaucracy for a population of just on 5 million is ludicrous. So welcoming it. So you're leaping into it going, yes, (laughs) this needs to happen. But also knowing, you know, even though this change will happen, there's no doubt about it, it will happen. I just think it happens much slower. The thing, I think, too, is that when people are in stress or resistant, you know, what we know about neuroscience and reptilian brain amygdala brain, people can't learn anything when they're in that space or embrace anything positive about what the change might bring. So it's because they are thinking of mortgages, thinking of raising children, of thinking of cost of living. I mean, that's what the pandemic has done, isn't it? Yeah. We just need to look at all the change that's happened for people. And some people have come up with really great, innovative, it's transformed their lives because something new's happened. There is a lot of poverty out there and a lot of people who are suffering 
Mm. Yeah, so I think it's complex. So when I say planning for disruption, I just think it's complex. I think it's about thinking of how to put in a whole bunch of supports, but also for the people that are leading the changes about how to have better understanding of what people are experiencing. And you wrote yeah. about leadership and chaos as well as something that really fascinates you. Can you share how those two are linked and how you conceptualize those? Yeah, well, I think that becomes very parent-child dynamics at leadership and chaos, and that creates all the dynamics that goes on with that. So, yeah, I think if leaders are, like, can be atop that domino, who did the work around the ego chain? I guess it's like domestic violence. If someone kicks someone who kicks someone who kicks someone who kicks the dog, right. you know, like, it's, yeah. I think leadership and chaos can be like that as well, and very much a blame culture. And one of the things that I've been looking at has been around the amount of adverse events that happen with medications. Right. And one of the studies that I really want the ministry to embrace, and clinicians has been termed as second victims. So patients or consumers is what they're now being called here in New Zealand. There's a lot of people that are harmed by medications. Yeah. Either inadvertently, like whether it's three times a day or four times a day, to death. And yet all our disparate technologies and systems and public health create a lot of tension and aren't beautifully the workflows don't flow that well. <laughs> but what would be really interesting to look at is that clinicians who are part of being part of the process of an adverse event happening is what happens to them. So depending on why I'm talking about this in leadership and chaos, because often clinicians are the ones that get the bullet. Right. And from one of the studies that I've read, it very much depends on how that clinician is supported or not right. as to how they then go on to either still be traumatized by the experience, especially if it's been a sentinel event of someone dying or being mm. severely harmed. There's a lot leave, there's uh, suicides high, or some stay and their practice is poor. Mm. Gone on a bit in terms of going from leadership and chaos, but I think that leadership and chaos can lead to a lot of blaming. That's why meaning the whole parent-child more mm. dynamic happens as opposed to how can we solve this together, what are the things... One of the things that I love about the whole learning aspect of when project teams get together is actually like what are the skill sets around the table other yeah. than what you're here for? Like if you're here as a business analyst or a solution architect or this and that, but you also might be training to be a psychotherapist. You also might be a communications somebody. Yeah. So I just think it's a result of tension and stress and pressure. Mm. Living in a perfect world, that's going to always happen. Yeah, mm. it seems like there's a thread that's running through our conversation, which is around this idea of psychological safety, which mm. you talked about in the learning process and how people don't learn when they're anxious. In the TA provision of training, the apprenticeship and how vulnerable that is when you're in this goldfish bowl. And yet that works when you're in a safe environment and leadership as well, providing the support and safety. Such an mm. important thing in terms of where we're at emotionally and developing systems and projects and work environments that are effective. A lot of it seems to be that that's something that you're working with in the mix is people's emotional safety. Yeah. Well, I think about it a lot. Yeah. I think cognizant of it. And I think that's where, you know, I keep coming back to contracting because I think that is a way of how we can check out things and also how we can put good definition around what it is we're doing in the here and now. Yeah. And what's happening next and and that's what was so interesting around for me and my PhD research when I went back and listened to all the, all the pieces of verbatim that I had. And there were three core themes that came out from the whole examining group memory. So that's interesting around 
what do groups remember and how do they remember and what tools do they use to help them remember? So what I did was design-based research and I did a pre-study where I went and observed meetings. And I wanted to do that because I knew I was really biased about meetings because yeah. I've been in so many. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> been in so many, run so many, and I thought it'd be good to observe. So yeah. I observed a bunch of meetings and then worked with a teleco company here with their senior leadership team. and. They were doing strategic planning and also wanted to change their meetings because they'd grown exponentially, et cetera. But anyway, coming back to the phenomena that came out of the research was, one was that people were uncertain about what they remembered. Oh, actually, ah. I'm not quite sure around, did that happen or that happen? Or Interesting, like yeah. Yes, yeah, so it came back, what I noticed, started noticing was a lot of looking back acts, how many times people looked back at, yeah. actually, I'm not quite certain about that, or, yeah, I'm not sure, was it that, or, and then the opposite happened of people being absolutely certain, so confirmation of, <laughs> like, no, no, John, you were doing that, and then Matt was doing that, and then I was doing this. Now, I'm sure if we looked in the minutes, that's what it would be. That's yeah. definitely me in a meeting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll vouch for that. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And then there was people going, well, but just maybe what I just mentioned around the structure. Weren't we doing this first? And then that was happening. And then wasn't this happening? And so that actually surprised me the most. And I was pleasantly surprised. I thought, wow, there's such a link here to a TA theory around people's hunger for structure and hunger for recognition and hunger for a whole bunch of things. So, yeah, it was really fascinating and so there were what we called sort of spontaneous looking back acts. Yeah. Where people, and it would pause a meeting. People would go, hang on a second, hang on. And they weren't planning to and it wasn't in the agenda, but it would pause the meeting and actually people in those kind of nanoseconds would look back and would question and would, unless the chairperson said, park that or bring that up after the meeting or whatever. Yeah. And then what I did is put in very structured memory things. So I did a, we'd have a rich meeting summary at the beginning and I'd do it visually because we had an online space Yeah. and taken photos of everything that we did. And yeah. so instead of saying what happened last meeting, because you know, everyone's in millions, lots of meetings all yeah. the time, just run you through. So it was not just the minutes. So there's lots of artifacts. And then you can go, oh, so within the space of less than five minutes, everyone who was present, present. Yeah. Right, that's right. Yes, yeah. So you'd have a clear record of what happened in the previous yeah. meeting and the structure yeah. and the, the manner in which it happened. Yeah, but right. it was also a way of bringing people into the room, into this moment yeah. of what we were doing. And then at the end of the meeting, I'd do a thing that, I mean, I talk about that about, you know, group reflection. Yeah. But I'd actually get them, and I would have drawn it up either on the whiteboard or on some butcher's paper of, WWW, what went well in that meeting? And this is when I talk about this, people find this quite contentious because they can't imagine themselves ever doing it. What went well in the meeting and what learning occurred, WLO. And I yeah. get people to stand up and either go over there and do that. And the group that I worked with to start with, I got them to draw on post it notes to start with. Yeah. Just in terms of, okay. And then as time went by, they were really comfortable around time and da da da. Yeah. But what I wanted them to do was actually stand up and look back at that meeting. Almost like we do in supervision is look back into supervision, as Julie Hayward call it. Yeah. But, and it wasn't a piece of supervision, but I wanted them to actually, now let's look back at that meeting as we're walking out the room for a few minutes, standing still. What did go well and what didn't? And so 
And then we'd bring that back into the Rich Meeting Summary at the beginning. And so remember last week, we also said that we were going to rearrange how we did things. So you kept it alive like it was, yeah. so it was how, you facil- yeah, how you facilitate and then got them facilitating it towards the end. But those two things prompted memory and learning, you know, because I'd put in, did some micro learning, teaching them some TA yeah. contracts and different things throughout the thing. Yeah, so it was, you yeah, oh, I enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, it is sounds fascinating. Like, it sounds like you would save an awful lot of wasted meeting time. Well, that's what my, my research what I talk about. I mean, millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars go into meetings. <laughs> yeah. And that's, you know, that's the other thing that I find interesting in terms of the work I do now on no one is someone who does it well here in New Zealand of doing benefits realisation management. Well, how do you measure that return? So how do we measure it from a person's perspective Yeah. in terms of wasting time? Because you've asked most people, you know, a lot of things around Meetings are good time wasters. <laughs> ah, <and> so, <laughs> sorry, Matt. No, Karen, you go. It's, I find it so interesting because when I used to work in corporate sector, they did things like you could only have standing meetings. Yeah. You know, they'd introduce a new yeah. role. So from now, it's only stand-ups because we get more done, apparently. And then no meeting Fridays. So no meetings were allowed to take place on Fridays. But actually, I can see while they were trying to achieve, you know, they all have the common goal of reducing costs and making things more efficient. They were missing out on, on the piece of what was going on for individuals. And that's what you're really speaking to here. Yeah, and I think now, and I'm actually just, I've done the concept for a book because I've got a bit wanting to do a bunch of articles. But actually, my dream was when I started doing this was actually a book. Right. And what we've all come to expose to and experience with all these virtual meetings that we have. I mean, even though we would have a virtual meeting <laughs> with what we're doing now. We're all on meetings, online meetings all the time. And so I take myself, you know, down to Wellington at least once a month to get some human face-to-face contact. <laughs> and in the discussions that I've, we hear and we see on social media that people are exhausted by online meetings. Yeah. And also that what I notice is when you're actually physically in the room, you turn off the video teams or Zoom or whatever we're using and conversations keep happening. Yeah of the people that are still in the room. And you miss that thing of that if we're all in the same meeting and we've gone to the kitchen to get a coffee in, how was your weekend? How's your golf going? Well, yeah, those interactions, yeah. I think, are underestimated in our online, yeah. living online, you know, working in online. Even though it's been a wonderful tool to survive and get through what the world's going through, yeah. I think as humans, we're craving being together. I think it's true. Know, time to time. Very much. Mm. So, Mandy, before we finish the podcast, maybe you could tell us how people can get hold of you, get in touch with you, and where they might be able to find your publications, things that you've written. Sure. So, the main place would be on my website, which is www.mandylacy.nz. Mandylacy.nz. There's no E. Mandy, thank you so much for your time today. It's been so interesting for lack of learning a lot. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Mandy. Thank you both. I've loved the opportunity. As always, if you found anything in today's episode interesting, please feel free to reach out. You can visit our website, which has lots of information and TA resources, transactionalanalysispodcast.com. You can connect with us on all major platforms such as Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And you can email us at threepeopleinyourhead at gmail.com using the number three rather than the word. If you haven't already, please follow us on Apple Podcast and Spotify. 
And we'd be really grateful if you could leave us a review. Thanks for listening. Thank you.